If you're hoping to get rich overnight from the stuff, then that's bad news. But if, you, if you're hoping to talk about it in the same breath as other, as other asset classes, then that's fantastic news, right? Okay. It's becoming just another asset class, and, and eventually that price volatility will disappear along with everything else. Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Stephen, Simon, thank you so much for joining us. A round of applause for you both. often with um, the titles of the book, Beyond Bitcoin, I feel, and, and I'm not sure if it's the position that I have in terms of perception, but I feel that we've been beyond Bitcoin for quite, time, quite a while. Ethereum, you know, Doge, um, and, and moving more into crypto and even NFTs. Is it, is it not just that Bitcoin is used as a, nom- a nomenclature like Xerox will always be photocopy and Hoover will always be Uber, it means e-hailing, or do you think that people are still very drawn to um, Bitcoin as a litmus test? So there is an an unfortunate confusion that that happened when Satoshi Nakamoto came out with his very famous white paper in 2009, which birthed the entire revolution of crypto. And the the unfortunate jargon mix-up is that Bitcoin was the name given to the blockchain, which is the technology plumbing that sits underneath all the stuff. Bitcoin is also the name given to the cryptocurrency. It is true that the blockchain is the birth of the crypto industry and all these mutant creatures that have arisen. You've mentioned some of them. You've mentioned Bitcoin, the currency. You've mentioned Dogecoin. There are thousands of others that belong in the cryptocurrency world. But what this book specifically is about is those applications which grew from this wonderful thing called a blockchain. I'm not sure whether we'll get into why a blockchain is a wonderful thing. That have nothing to do with cryptocurrencies at all. So the title of the book, Beyond Bitcoin, was specifically designed to say we're not going to be talking much about cryptocurrencies in this book, because everybody's heard of Bitcoin, although we do explain how all of those things work. What we're going to be talking about is another fork in the road, which is based on the blockchain, many different kinds of blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, there are a bunch of others, which has enabled a bunch of explorers and inventors to rebuild those financial services that we know and love, banking services, insurance services, exchange services, derivative services, and provide services that are better, faster, cheaper, more trustworthy, and fairer Mm. for the rest of us. But just to add to that, Trafil, where I think, you know, Bitcoin is still the dominant narrative in the crypto industry, and that's not going to change for some time and for good reason. And I think it's also important to remember that Bitcoin is a narrative. It's easy to get enamored with the technology and talk about blockchain and all the other things that are happening in this ecosystem. You go all the way back to the original Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. You know how many times the word blockchain appears in that document? Zero. It hadn't been made up yet, right? Satoshi never talks about the blockchain. He talks about, or they talk about, um, he, she, or they, <laughs> uh, talks about, uh, talks about this, the narrative around Bitcoin, a, a set of rules, a monetary policy. Um, and the reason I think that's so important is because we see this with any new innovation. People get carried away with the technology, mm-hmm. and they think that just because blockchain B uses the same, you know, Nakamoto consensus protocol that blockchain A uses, that they're the same thing. They absolutely aren't. 
Technology doesn't matter, narratives matter, human stories matter, what we do with this stuff matters. That's why the best technologies seldom win, you know, and they're the, the famous example of VHS and Betamax. Right. So, so right now, Bitcoin is winning, not because it's the best technology, but because it has the best story to offer, it has the best narrative, it's the most compelling of the cryptocurrencies. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I'd always taken that as a first mover advantage, but, but I, you, we are going to get into why blockchain is a good thing, and we do want to get into the separation. Let's take a step back, because the subtitle of the book is uh, Decentralized Finance um, and the End of Banks, um, which, as a banker, makes me nervous, so I'm just going to suspend my, <laughs> suspend my doubts. Why don't you take us through the 101 of the makeup of DeFi, or decentralized finance, all the way from the blockchain to the DAO and, um, and the like? Okay, I'll, I'll take a crack at the short story. The long story is in the book. Yes. Okay. Um, just to give you some context about the, the, the tagline to the book, which is mm. the end of banks. Francis Fukuyama, who apparently was a, a virtual um, participant in, 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 in this uh, festival, wrote a very famous book in the 90s called uh, The History, The End of History. He didn't mean to say that history was ending. He was talking about it as a metaphor. When we used that word, the end of banks, of course, it was very carefully considered with our publishers. We didn't literally mean that banks were going to end. What that is a metaphor is that banks are going to have to change. So had we used the title, as, 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 as uh, Simon likes to point out, um, decentralized finance and sort of the end of the banks as you kind of know it, so we wouldn't have sold very many books. It's not the end of banks. It's that banks have in front of them a set of new technologies which are being invented by somebody outside of the global financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And they're providing a service that the bank are not, not providing. And the banks are going to have to, in a painful shudder of reinvention, absorb these sort of new technologies into their service offerings, otherwise they will disappear. And if you have a look around the world today at what is happening at the major global banks, which would be Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and Bank of America, all of them have their toes deep into DeFi. So I'm going to leave the second half of that answer to, for Simon to give you the 101. What was the second half of the question? What's DeFi? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before I do, I think an important point to add there is that banks are now optional for the first time in their history. Mm, yes. Well. They were arguably optional at first, but they very quickly became something that nobody could live without. Right. right. Uh, and, and yet, we have so many people who do live without them. You know, in South Africa, depending who you speak to, we've got between five and eight million people who are unbanked. Mm. That doesn't mean they don't want bank accounts. It means the bank doesn't want them as clients, can't Correct. make sense of them as entities. Um, and so, to me, you know, financial inclusion is a big part of the story as well. When we talk about the, the, the end of banking as we know it, a, we're talking about banks becoming optional. And very interesting set of dynamics come to play when um, something that was fundamental becomes optional in an industry. Mm. You know, you can study this through the lens of media or any other vertical that the internet has disrupted. You know, when you, when you take institutions that were used to being something that you had to have and you make them optional, it fundamentally changes, you know, the way they operate and think about themselves in the world. But back to the question of, of DeFi, obviously it stands for decentralized finance. Think of anything that happened in the financial world before um, and was usually the domain of financial institutions and move that into a distributed online um, space mm -hmm. where protocols can replace those institutions. So you could have a protocol for lending, for example, um, for underwriting in the insurance industry, for exchange, and you can have that happening without centralized entities. Um, so basically these functions that were represented by institutions before are now represented by protocols. The access layer is very friendly, it's permissionless, anybody can do it. 
That's, that's what decentralized finance refers to. So, thank you for that. Um, and I'm glad that you touched on the financial inclusion because the, the underlying principle that allows that to happen is what you mentioned in the book, which is the trustless mm. economic system. And I know you were saying anyone can be trustworthy, but I think actually what the book was telling me is that I don't even need you to be because the protocols will filter that for me. So, um, as, as described in the book, a trustless economic system means that participants need not trust anyone in that system, not even a little, not the people who built it, not the people who use it, not the people who abuse it. This is true of most of the DeFi projects we will discuss. Trustless architectures are designed around assumption of the worst case, case scenario, i.e. everyone is equally liable to be dishonest. You do not even need to trust the system itself. And that's a very critical and bold perspective from the more, um, you know, less beguiling um, concept of a, a person who might default on their higher purchase, mm. right? Because that's, that's part of the trust, is the risk assessment that a bank would take, and that's why so many people are unbanked. All the way to the things that are, in my mind, worst case scenario, potential arms dealing and human trafficking on the dark web. Correct. Um, and, and it feels as though, and this is, this is where I'd love to get some comfort in this conversation, obviously. Um, how, how can the protocols not be set up to bypass those deep risks um, by a very clever um, developer, for example? Okay, let me, t let, let me direct my response this way. Um, the, the matter of trust um, has two sort of endemic disadvantages in the pre-DeFi world. The first one is that when you trust somebody as a middleman to act on your behalf, mm -hmm. you pay them for their trust. So you pay your bank fees or, or interest rates spreads that they can make a profit from, or you pay transaction fees to your exchange. That is the rent-seeking that happens in the global financial world, and these boxes sit in the middle, and they extract rent in order to carry out transactions on your behalf in a trusted manner. So the one potential disadvantage over there is that you're paying too much for that trust. Why am I paying X rand in transaction fees on my checking account? Why is the commission that I'm paying the, my stockbroker that much? You can't ask these questions because those banks and those financial institutions won't tell you. They won't tell you how they get their interest rates, how they do their transaction fees, why the commissions are so-and-so. It's a closed box and they offer you the service and you take it or you leave it. So the one disadvantage is you have no idea whether that trust fee that you're paying to the middleman is too much or too little. The second one is a much bigger fracture which doesn't exist in the world of DeFi. By the way, on that first one, DeFi box is open. You can look at there and check all your algorithms and how they do the interest rates and how they do the fees. It's not a closed box like a bank. The second one is worse. The second one is you trust your financial institution, and we all deal with big banks, and they are trustworthy, and they don't lose our money. But if you get a bad employee in the bank, it's all over. Mm. And there is $1 trillion a year that is in illicit transactions in the world, $1 trillion a year in the world of okay. traditional finance because they are untrusted people, whereas there's only 0.15% on blockchains, which is illicit transactions. If I could add to that, Please. the other, the fundamental uh, quality of, of blockchains beyond being trusted is the transparency of the ledger that anybody can go and take a look at and interrogate. 
And so now you've got companies like um, Chain Analysis, for example, and Elliptical that are de-anonymizing addresses on the blockchain and um, drawing up topologies and graphs of connections between wallets that have been de-anonymized. Mm. Um, because, you know, the transaction ledger is there for anybody to read all the way back to the first transaction when Satoshi Nakamoto famously sent some Bitcoin to Hal Finney in 2009. Every transaction from then until now is open for anybody to go and look at, mm. right? Um, so the moment you have, you know, a critical mass of de-anonymized addresses in the graph, you can start to draw correlation, and you can see, well, Rafilwe sent some money here, we don't know who had it there, but then Simon got it, so let's go speak to Simon and Rafilwe mm. and find out who this person was, etc. And so if you look at the, the small amount of crime that has happened on the blockchain, and I think this is part of the, the disinformation and, frankly, campaign around blockchain is that it's God's gift to criminals, which it absolutely is not. Um, you, you take from the smallest cases to the biggest cases, and one of the biggest being the Bitfinex hack, let's choose that one, in 2015, where at the time about $30 million worth of Bitcoin was stolen. Um, those hackers were caught this year. They've been ar ar arrested in New York. The Bitcoin they have is now worth billions. Mm. Um, because they were able to trace from that Bitfinex address, you know, forensically all the way through the blockchain up until today, and they know who those people are. Now, criminals are many things, but they aren't often stupid, especially at that level, although these two are particularly stupid. It's, it's quite an interesting story. She's a rapper, and nobody seems quite sure what he does. But <laughs> My point is that the traditional financial system is a great place for criminals because it's yes. opaque. I can't walk into a bank and go show me your ledger of transactions. So, you know? but, but sorry, just, just, just mm, to finish off that thought, yes. it's also very easy to go to the traditional financial system as somebody who you aren't. You know, because we've created a set of regulations around KYC, AML, mm. counter-terrorist financing, it's, it's trivial for me, especially in South Africa, to go and take an identity pack and purport to be somebody I'm not and open up a bank account in their name and look clean to the system when I'm not. So I right. want to yeah. challenge your perspectives. First you, Stephen, and, and then Simon. But it's, the, it's the same thought, two ends of the same thought. The first being there will inherently be a cost in my exercising the transparency of the crypto ledger because the average person is not algorithmically educated. The yeah. average person, somebody still needs to decipher this. I still need to get a person to say, and, and that person would be perfectly um, entitled to earn that fee, all the way to the fact that, to be fair, it's not entirely apples and oranges. This is a couple centuries old industry in banking where we've all learned how to, you know, we've got how to navigate it and how to cheat it. Yeah. Um, we will eventually learn how to cheat. Which is why we'll always have banks, but, right? We'll always have intermediaries. So, just, uh, I'd like to bring it down to first principles. And, and so there's um, an interesting recent, because this, this wonderful development obviously indicates the possible end of the need for the, not only the clearinghouse, but also the regulator, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I want to read you a little story from um, a story about a, a board ape. This, that board ape, okay. For, for, the, for purposes of those who don't know, board ape is a form of NFT. It's very po popular, non-fungible um, um, token, um, and also sort of framed within this context of bulletproof safety. On the eve of uh, the New Year, that's the New Year of 2022, tragedy struck in Manhattan. Chelsea Art Gallery owner Todd Kramer had 615 ETH, about $2.3 million worth, admittedly not a lot in this world, of NFTs, primarily bored apes and mutant apes, stolen by scammers and listed on the peer-to-peer -peer NFT marketplace OpenSea. 
Kramer quickly took to Twitter and begged for help from OpenSea and the NFT community for help regaining his NFTs. Unsurprisingly, he was ripped to shreds by others in the community for not storing his valuable JPEGs in an offline wallet. However, OpenSea froze trading of the stolen NFTs on its platform. More than a few commentators pointed out that OpenSea's intervention here, and especially Kramer's pleas for a centralized response, seems to go against a key tenet of the industry that often bumps up against usability. The idea that code is law, and once your tokens are in someone else's digital wallet, what's the end game? It's important here, I mean, this is from the New York Times. I, I'm challenging it only because it's recent, it was quite widely publicized, sure. and it was, it was kind of a story that was saying, here is one of your biggest proponents of this space, saying, please, regulators, step into the DeFi mm. market. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? So, so, there, so there are multiple levels of issues in, in that little story. Just let me choose, choose a couple of them. I'm sure. sure Simon has the other. First one is the particular incident you talk about was one of the mantras of this entire world is decentralization. OpenSea is not decentralized, it's centralized. And so it, okay. right there, it violates the entire spirit and philosophy of what a blockchain mm -hmm. is, 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 is supposed to be. Second one is the point that you opened with is that not many people out there uh, have are algorithmically motivated, Simon uses the word, they don't have the telemetry to learn all the stuff, they just want somebody to take care of it for mm. them. That's absolutely valid. And there is a chapter in the book about the headwinds to blockchain. Mm. Some of the headwinds to blockchain are the misreporting of crime, Correct. the misreporting of en the energy problem, which we can yes. get into. But the important one is that there is a challenge and there is a most definite headwind in the complexity of entering the system and understanding what you're doing. Mm. But we don't have to do that. As we've mentioned, banks won't go away. You need a middleman to wrestle this complex machine to the ground. So you were still going to pay for the trust, for somebody to wrestle this machine to the ground on your behalf. But our point is it's going to be fairer, more inclusive, and much cheaper. Okay. Uh, maybe on the point of regulation then, I'm a proponent of regulation. Oh. But Regulation is a dangerous thing because when it's good, it's very, very good, and when it's bad, it's terrible. Right. And most financial regulation tends to be terrible, right? Unlike or, other or, industries. Or certainly mm -hmm. a laggard, you know? So it's either, it's either so heavy-handed that it yeah. chokes an industry, or it's so um, liberating that it's a laggard to yeah. what may develop. Well, it, I, th I think, you know, it, as human beings, we also fail to understand sometimes that things can be less than useless. Yes. If something actually makes a problem worse that it's trying to fix, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of regulation falls into that camp. Now, again, when regulation works, it's great. Look at the aviation authorities, for example. Sure. I love the fact that airplanes have to be serviced and that pilots have to have licenses. Yes. Right? That works <laughs> for me. There's, there's an example of good regulation. Yeah. Um, but somebody being able to email documents into a bank and open an account potentially in my name without me knowing about it, and that being, you know, fine. That's, that's, not, a, that's not fantastic regulation. Is that a failure of re regulation, or is that a failure of implementation? I, you know, one, one can talk about, about right? that all, all, all day, and yeah. it's probably a bit of both, but it begins with the regulation that enables okay. the set of behaviors. Sorry, just to go to the code is law thing as well. Uh, that's, that's a mantra in, 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 in our industry that I don't support at all. Yeah. It's like saying physics is law, so because somebody managed to steal your bicycle, they should have it. You know, it's, yeah. code is a mechanism just like physics are a mechanism. Right. So no, if somebody shouldn't be allowed to steal things from you that they don't own, and there should be some recourse if they do. But your point earlier on that it's not about the technologically, technology underneath it, but actually about what humans are trying there to do go. with it. You touched very briefly on energy, so let's, let's move there. Um, um, I think that one is often a headwind in terms of the consumption of energy. In your chapter on the great crypto energy debate, it was an, it was an interesting moment that you highlighted that it, 
was brought to people's attention. Um, a quote around on May 13, 2021, Elon Musk tweeted, Tesla has suspended vehicle purchases using Bitcoin. We are concerned about the rapidly increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining, especially coal. Even though there had already been a number of articles expressing concern about, uh, that was a close quote, even though there had been um, already been a number of articles expressing concern about crypto mining and energy usage, Musk's tweet not only helped to catalyze one of the worst crashes in crypto market history, but also pushed the entire issue of energy consumption into the public eye. And I, I, I like you, ha had a sense that it was already known that, that mining is extremely, extraordinarily expensive, but they, and as you discussed, that there are a lot of mitigating uh, technologies uh, to try and assist that. So if this is the sense that this was only in 2021 that people got nervous, I thought this would be a good time to disabuse that. Yeah, good, and so much has happened in, in, yeah. since, since I wrote that, that, that paragraph back in 2021. Just let me give you some statistics so that one of the worst the worst um, crimes against reporting has been the reporting on energy. People who have reported on energy from mainstream media, media have not done their homework, and I'll give you the reasons why. First of all, in 2021, uh, the dirty usage of energy in the process of mining was, was uh, well over 50%, and now it's down to 32%. And which makes mining cleaner than the Apple in your pocket or the Android in your pocket and cleaner than your car. It is now one of the cleanest industries in the world because of the pressure to lower energy costs. That's number one. 2003, Forbes magazine has a headline at the current usage of the internet. The internet will gobble all the world's energy by 2020. In 2017, Newsweek has a headline at the current usage of Bitcoin. Bitcoin will gobble all the world's energy by 2021. Technology does not work that way. All miners know that the cost of mining, I'm talking about Bitcoin mining, mm. the cost of mining is your electricity usage. So they look for ways to lower their cost of electricity, which means moving your mines up to river, to a dam where no electricity is being used by anybody, put your, and put your turbine over there. Or grab the methane at the top of a, of, of a chimney and, and, and the, gas, the gas oil flares or the oil flares at the top of the chimney and put a heat turbine over there and what you're doing is taking pollution out of the atmosphere. As it stands today, Bitcoin mining is responsible 0.08% of the world's carbon emissions and less than 1% uh, of the world's energy. It's a rounding error at this point and it's getting not worse but better because of the new technologies coming down the line. Anything you want to add? So, you know... When you see a promoted tweet on yes. Twitter, it tells you who promoted it. Yes. In 2017, there was an article that was run on, I think it was Bloomberg, that said, you know, Bitcoin uses more uh, electricity than a small country. It was the first time a major news outlet had written about Bitcoin, quote-unquote, wasting electricity. And it was promoted on Twitter by American Express. And uh, I don't well, know if their media buyers knew that when you promote a story on Twitter, it actually tells you who promoted it, mm. unlike on Facebook and other platforms. So, so what happened there? Well, financial institutions started seeing the writing on the wall in the, in the mid-2010s um, and started seeing that there was a credible threat here in the form of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance. And they set out to do something about it. Now, the first thing you do as an industry when you have a credible threat like this is you come up with a misinformation campaign, right? A FUD campaign. 
And famously, Microsoft did this in the early 2000s against Linux and open source. They had a campaign which internally at Microsoft was called Get the Facts. They spent, I think it was $200 million on billboards, advertorial, promoting articles to say that the ROI on Linux is terrible, open source software is full of bugs, and if you use this stuff in your enterprise, you're going to pay more for support, it's going to be a terrible financial decision, etc., etc. Of course, that campaign failed, Linux won, and now the best place to get Linux is from Microsoft, right? Mm. If you download Windows 11, you have the Windows subsystem for Linux that's powering part of the operating system, right? So Microsoft eventually realized they couldn't win this war, stopped digging in their heels, realized that we can't beat them, so we need to join them, adopted open source, happy days. Mm. But a lot of companies like Microsoft continue to fight, continue to dig in their heels, and we don't talk about them anymore because they're not around. So let's relate that to what's happening with American Express and this misinformation campaign around Bitcoin wasting electricity. They needed a campaign. They needed to anchor it in a story. They couldn't find much, so <laughs> they went to, to, to press with Bitcoin wasting electricity. It wasn't a great story, but it was the best mm. one they had, right? And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it hits emotional. Uh, it, it resonates with people. Correct. But it's also, it's also just ludicrous because Christmas lights, tumble dryers, YouTube are all examples of things that use exponentially more power than, than Bitcoin does, right? Sure. So if we wanted to save an equivalent amount of power to the Bitcoin network, we just have to get North America to stop putting lights on their houses at Christmas every year, right. and we'd solve the problem. But here's why this is so disingenuous, because let's look at the thing that Bitcoin was designed to, to replace. Mm -hmm. And this is where the skeptics say it's whataboutism, but when you compare something directly to what it's attacking, it's not a whataboutism. If you look at one single big Wall Street bank, it will employ thousands of people, and a large percentage of those people will be in the C-suite. And they will fly around on private company jets. Some of them will own their own. They will have two Land Range Rovers in the garage, right? They will have holiday houses all over North America, and the clients of that bank are, you know, paying also, for all of yeah. this. So if you want to talk about waste of resources, then go to the traditional financial world and these traditional financial institutions, and look at how they deploy capital. I mean, who cares about electricity? The world didn't run on farts before Bitcoin. You know, it's like everything Simon, uses it. I mean, it, you're not going to tell me that a person who becomes a Bitcoin billionaire is now going to ride a bicycle. I mean, they'll also want to get the Range Rover. I mean, sure, so but, and that's and a philosophical they're, they're, discussion. And, right, right? But, but just if I can dial this back a little bit, because I want to get back to the, where you're going with the promotion, and then let's talk about the motivation. Uh, for Amex, um, which is obviously existential, right? Well, actually, interesting to add to that story, Amex is, is now like Microsoft, realized mm -hmm. that they can't win this battle, and they actually have a, they're spending a lot on crypto innovation, so they have a team at Amex now that's looking at how they can incorporate this stuff. And that, that's usually the progression, and uh, it, it's interesting, so I've, I hope you don't mind, but I found your postscript actually was actually quite an interesting way to open the discussion, but we're here now, um, <laughs> in which you say, We've never, we haven't seen anything like this before. Cult-like followings, personal animosities, narcissism, threats, anger accusations, lawsuits, false promises of utopia, public shamings, scam artistry, outline, outright felony, some of our worst instincts on display, ever since Bitcoin suddenly found a market. Social media rages continuously, like a fire and gusty wind. Every project has its fierce protectors and shills and barkers, and haters and distractor, detractors. I mean, you had to say haters. Anyway, um, and there in the shadows, always a bunch of young coders working quietly late into the night, hoping that their project is the promised land and worth the tokens that might have offered to them in lieu of salaries. Why this level of emotion? It is because this new technology is at the heart of things, money. And 
And so to your point, and, and I also want to come back to something you, you said at the beginning, the, the capitulation that actually we won't fight it and so we have to take it on, and you mentioned this about the banks. One, is that why Jamie Dimon? <laughs> and two, is that why Libra? So for context, Jamie Dimon is one of the most, a CEO of JP Morgan, one of the most uh, respected CEOs on, on Wall Street in terms of bulge bracket investment banks, and one who actually, I think, is the only surviving one from pre great financial crisis of the big five, right? Um, uh, 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 oh, excuse me, English. Um, I've run out of English bundles. Um, <laughs> extraordinarily wealthy and extraordinarily well-connected and well-respected. And much like a Musk tweet, uh, when he sort of made the statement a couple of years ago that you know, there's absolutely no way that this de decentralized finance or DeFi can take place, um, kind of with a little bit of fear-mongering, Mm. Um, there was a bit of, and, and, and would you say that is why, the, the, the protection? And then, of course, Facebook's Libra, which unfortunately really fell apart with, um, from, on the basis of Libra being their currency that they were trying to put together on what seemed to be the basis of a coordinated attack or coordinated pushback from banks mm. or so regulators. Libra rather. was, I think, more regulators responding to what was essentially a currency board, and we know that yes. currency boards are a terrible idea. Yes. So Facebook just hadn't thought this through. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> 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 um, but, but yeah, I mean, J, uh, uh, Mr. Diamond also said that if anybody at JPM traded Bitcoin, he'd, he'd fire them, and they right. now have one of the biggest crypto trading desks. There's um, the capitulation, <laughs> exactly. There's the capitulation happening. So, so, so let me just pick up what's important point and it, it, it underscores that paragraph that, mm. that you read that was in the postscript over there is this is the core of things this is a new set of, of innovations that, that um, is embedded in our monetary system and our monetary, our monetary system is embedded in our lives and how we'd like to leave them and that's where all the emotion comes from the movement of capital from the traditional world into the crypto world over the last 13 years has been the biggest and fastest movement of capital in human history. The number of times that there have been predictions of the death of this thing, either by people whose power are threatened, or by commentators who simply don't like this thing. We hear it every year, we hear it in the, we've heard it in the past three days, anybody who's been following the news, there's been a major crypto crash. Mm. This is deeply important stuff, because what it does is it frees the citizen from having to be obliged to somebody else to carry on their financial journey. It doesn't force them to do so, as Simon pointed out. You don't have to include yourself in this. But it gives you the option of taking a financial journey with your own money, with your loans, with your deposits, with your insurance, with your buying and selling stocks, where you are a sovereign individual. And that, that phrase called a sovereign individual is a very, very scary phrase to the centers of powers like nation states. Nation states will talk about the freedom of the individual, but they want to surveil the individual, sometimes for very good reason. A nation state can't work unless they see the free flow of money through the economy so they know when to pull the levers of interest rates and liquidity. They need to be able to collect taxes. But when people say, I want to be sovereign and free from my government, along bells go off over all sorts of institutions. So there is a great battle happening right now with lots of dead bodies, and it's between those people who say, no, I want the privacy of my own financial journey versus regulators, nation states, and other centers of power who say, no, that's dangerous for us because we can't control it, and that's what all this regulationary mm. from is all about. And how will we get our tax? And how will we get well, our tax? Well, there's that, right. So 
<laughs> so here we are on the other side of capitulation, and invariably, given the muscle that existing financial institutions have, they will probably be the key, not necessarily gatekeepers, because they're no gates, um, but they'll be a very key player in this space. Mm. Does that not just take us back out of sovereign, um, sovereign uh, individualism? Well, that's the crux of, of the battle, mm. right? And I, I think I just want to use this opportunity to say we might be sounding very technical and highbrow in the way we're talking about the book. The book's a lot friendlier. <laughs> so please don't let us put you off. We've really tried to write this yes. for anybody who's interested and break it down and put it in terms that anybody can understand. Um, I'm not always as good as, at doing that uh, when I've had a very good sleep after only drinking water. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, you're doing actually great. I think, you've, I think you're very accessible and about, uh, you guys are as accessible as the book, but but it is, it is, I mean, it's dense. Yeah. We want to get to the, yeah. But the, the point I want to make is that um, the centers of power have found convenience in the fact that these things sound confusing. You know, mm. the, the, the creators of synthetic derivatives on Wall Street gave it a stupid name like that because they wanted most people to go, that's yeah. too complicated for me to understand, mm. right? And when you go and break down these principles, when you understand what something like arbitrage is and how it works in financial markets or what a derivative is as a representation of an instrument that can be traded, these are actually really simple things Correct. that the people of Wall Street and their counterparts around the world want you to think is too confusing for you to think about and do yourself, right? It yeah. suits them for you to believe that. But, you know, to your point, yes, the central banks are responding in, in, in various ways. On the one extreme, you've got China, which as far as possible has banned cryptocurrency activity in China. There's a lot of misunderstanding there as well, because some things are banned and other things aren't. But the, the central bank in, in China, the People's Bank, is working on their own digital currency, if you will. Mm. Um, so they'll have a, a digital yuan or renminbi that, um, you know, you will essentially be the state becoming the predominant bank in China, which it kind of already is. Yes. And so as a Chinese citizen, you'll open your account with the state. You won't go to a private bank necessarily. Mm. So, you know, private bankers around the world obviously are a little bit worried about the rise of the central bank digital currency. But in, through the lens of, of a Chinese regulator, this is all about surveillance and control, Correct. right? This gets tied into the social credit scoring system. The state wants to be able to say, well, Rafilwe hasn't mm. been acting very well this month, so we're mm. going to stop her from buying air travel and shopping here, mm. and maybe we'll let her buy her groceries. So that level of control is exactly what the Chinese government is trying to achieve. Western governments are also looking at CBDCs through a different lens. Mm. They purport to be far more liberal about it and less controlling, but, but don't, you know, don't think they're not interested in surveillance mm. and control as, as well. You know, one of my favorite analogies is street cameras on every corner in the UK. In London, yeah. Makes you safer, undoubtedly, but it falls into the wrong hands, and then what happens? Mm. It can be used for it racial is, profiling, it is used or, or it is for, used for racial yeah. profiling. So I think we have to be very careful about what we enable the state to do. Because undoubtedly it does make us safer, undoubtedly it will drive efficiencies into welfare payments. I mean, you can imagine SASA grants in South Africa mm. and the leaky pipes that exist in our payment rails here being solved with this kind of thing. But do you really want the state to have that kind of power when there's a regime change or the wrong people get hold of it? Okay. So I like where we are now because this takes us out of the technical and into the, what, it, what fundamentally is social and political, uh, which, is, which is the battle um, as, as this goes. Uh, first of all, uh, sorry, the water from last night. So I'm just joking. No, I just, <laughs> I just had a brain, a brain, uh, sort of blank, blank. Um, okay, so first of all, the 
the national, oh, I wanted to look at a, a recent issue, the national uh, currency being digital or a, a national call for digitization of currency has recently been experienced in El Salvador. Um, where the people, I think, were actually rising up against this national decide decision that says we are now going, this is going to be a digital currency country. Um, and my sense of it, if, if I read correctly, was it wasn't so much just maybe fears that you were just describing, but also the accessibility for the average person. When you speak about financial inclusion, when you speak about that kind of um, in intervention uh, to make sure that we can get everybody banked, there are certain just hardware requirements that I have um, in order to participate in this market that may still be blocked. And, and I was curious if the El Salvador example um, indicates any, um, raises any questions for, for your assertions for now. So, so the El Salvador one is a wonderful one to talk about. For those of you who don't know, El Salvador uh, proclaimed Bitcoin as legal tender, I don't know, about a year ago, I think. Mm. And it's used alongside the dollar currency, which is the other currency in El Salvador. If you look at the news reports and the statistics coming out of El Salvador, you find two completely diametrically opposed stories depending on who the journalist and the outlet is. On the one side, you'll see this thing has been total failure, it's too hot to use, nobody uses it. The actual facts, which I saw from a Masari report, just, Masari's one of the big researchers mm. in the field, just weeks ago. Six, by the way, El Salvadorians are not a highly educated country. Mm. Most people don't have matrix, a lot of people don't even get to grade seven. 60% of El Salvadorian citizens now use the Bitcoin rails when they go to the little spaza shop or whatever the mm. equivalent name is in, in Spanish to buy a loaf of bread. They use their very low cost smartphone and they mm. buy with Bitcoin on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. 60%. Now one of the things that we've talked about previously is how hard the stuff is to use. And I would just remind you that when the cell phone came out, it was a very common narrative, is nobody's, this is not going to apply to South Africa, it'll be for LSM7 and people who have you know, big educations and, and a deep pocket, everybody has cell phones. The technology is not that complicated, it's being proved in El Salvador, the cost of a transaction in El Salvador now is cents on the dollar. Okay. Customer remittance from their cousin in Los Angeles to El Salvador is cents on the dollar, where it was between 25% and 50% of the transaction using Western Union. So this is real inclusion that's happening in El Salvador. So, you, so that's at least 60% adoption within 12 months. Yes. That's, yeah. that's very rapid. Okay. And, and, and that to me is such an important example because I think most of the discussion around this stuff is dominated by Western media, predominantly in the States, sure. talking very philosophically and highfalutinly about whether this makes sense and wasting electricity and all sorts of nonsense. Whereas in countries like El Salvador and Zimbabwe, this has just become a way of life because necessity is the mother of innovation. Mm. And so I was speaking to a farmer in Zimbabwe recently and he said, Bitcoin's my bank now. Mm. He said, there's no, there's no bank to speak of in Zimbabwe anymore. He said, our national currency is, you know, may as well not exist. We, we're all dollar-based now. Mm. So I can't keep cash at home. I don't want to have bricks of dollars lying around. He said, the only way I can be a farmer and operate my business in Zimbabwe now is because of Bitcoin. He buys tractors with Bitcoin, <laughs> right? When he needs dollars, he changes Bitcoin for those dollars using localbitcoins.com or other peer-to-peer -peer networks. He said to me, without Bitcoin, not only would I no longer be farming, I would no longer be in Zimbabwe because I don't know practically how I would do it. So, the thing about fiat money, um, like the dollar, which ends up being very much a reserve or a benchmark currency, is that it's kind of 
it's kind of predicated on the GDP activity and, and, and money flow within the United States, like physical, that we can, we can get a sense of fundamentally. So I can decide of, you know, what the RAND is worth in my GDP and our movement of money against that. If we can go back to the currency, and we'll just use Bitcoin here as, as a litmus test, if you don't mind, just because it's the one that's most common. I, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, I think we're all aware, since its November peak at a million, um, Bitcoin has halved. Mm. Um, it's, it's more than half, actually. It's a little under 500,000. And um, I, I would like to take a step back on the fundamental drivers. One, of what took it to a million, and two, of what brought it back down. Because my biggest frustration in, when I speak about just the cryptocurrencies themselves is even the most um, avid crypto bull can never give me clear fundamentals as to why the price has gone up, even when they're happy and kind of disappear when it, dis when it goes down. Okay, so, so this leads to the often asked question, Rafael, where is, what is Bitcoin based on? What's its fundamental value? Correct, how, how, how do we understand what this is worth? And what I'd like to do is turn out a question around and ask you what a fiat currency is based on. If you speak to anybody from Turkey, where people have lost 50% of their wealth to inflation in the past 15 years, Argentina, people have lost 25% of their wealth to inflation, to much worse places like Venezuela and Zimbabwe, Austria in the 1930s. The fiat currency is based on nothing more than a government's trust. Yet you trust your government to manage the economy properly, and it works beautifully well in many countries of the world for hundreds of years, the United States, England and all of that, you trust your government. But it turns out if you take a broader view and lift up and look at the broad sweep of history, every single nation state, we found out while doing the research for this book, every single nation state over the past 10,000 years that has gone bankrupt, Roman Empire, all of them, have gone bankrupt for exactly the same reason. They have debased the currency by printing too much. In the, in the Roman Empire, they salted the gold coins with silver because they wanted to raise another army to invade another area of Europe. Inflation is the equivalent of the usage of an inflatory activity to debase a currency to cover over government mismanagement. Sure. So when you say, what is a Bitcoin based on, and of course the answer to that is, is with the volatility, it's public perception. The question is, what is a fiat currency based on? So, it's based as I said, the, the, the value in, the, in, the, in an economy, and obviously if you debase it, then it's going to lose its value. That's logical. Do you trust your government not to debase the rand? Well, not at this, at this point, I absolutely do. It's, 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 it's inflated by 100% um, since 2007. I don't trust any government's but, not to be the rand and the fuel. The underlying catalyzing fuel but, of Bitcoin but was... But that's an unqualified statement. So, in, so it's, it's one thing to say that the rand has lost its value or has been debased by the behavior that's happened in fiscal policy. Mm. I can understand that. But on a monetary policy basis, yes, the, the bank, the South African Reserve Bank has not actively debased the rand. So let me talk about the underlying philosophical fuel behind... Um, Bitcoin, one of the underlying fuels under Bitcoin, was to make a currency that was non-debasable. Okay? You can't okay. inflate it because there's a finite amount of Bitcoin that will ever be printed. That particular thing sparked the whole thing. They took a look at the round and they said, one cannot trust a government to mismanage its economy and therefore finally inflate and debase and our currency is worth less than it was. So it's the equivalent of going back to the gold standard. But, yes, it uh, but, is. But you're yes. still not giving me this. What are, what are the fundamental drivers 
of the Bitcoin currency. So maybe I could put a bit of a different lens on, if, if, if I may. Um, firstly, the, the notion of intrinsic value is just nonsense, right? Nothing is intrinsically valuable. All value is subjective. Sure. All of it. Liquidity right? is confidence, yeah. yeah. So you look at gold, for example, and interestingly, if you take all the gold that we've ever mined as a species and you put it all together, it would fill four Olympic-sized swimming pools, right? So there's not a hell of a lot of it, but why is it valuable? It's a shiny rock. You know, why is jewelry valuable? It looks nice, but again, that's subjective. Yes, you can use it in catalytic converters and small amount in electronics, but that doesn't drive the gold market, right? Gold's value is really a decision we've made as a species that we like shiny rocks, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, now, how much gold is there in the world? Nobody knows. We have a rough idea of how much gold could still in be mined. Reserves, yeah. We know there are meteors that are made of the stuff, so maybe one day Elon Musk will send a spaceship out to go and let's do a meteor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he'll try, whether yes. or not he does it. He's very good at trying things. Doing them is a different story, but anyway. My point is that in, in Bitcoin, I've got the most provably scarce thing in the universe. I know down to eight uh -huh. decimals exactly how much Bitcoin there will ever be. Now, as any basis for settlement of value, that in itself is massively useful. For sure. Again, subjectively, depending on who decides to adopt it. Yeah. But if I'm going to send value from South Africa to somebody in Japan, and we need to agree on what that value should be, Surely having a protocol built into the internet itself mm -hmm. with a scarce unit of measure where nobody can interfere with the monetary policy and we know down to eight decimals there will only ever be this much of it. That's a pretty good way for me to agree with somebody in Japan what the value of something should be. Now why is it so, vol it's so wildly volatile compared to, to fiat? We're still having the discussion. No, I, right? no please okay. understand. I have no qualm with volatility. No, no, no. Because volatility can be priced. I understand it, but your question is why? Why is it so volatile? No, right? my question oh, is okay. what are the fundamental drivers? Sorry. So, oh, right. So South African Rand is volatile. Yes. But every time it or is... Or less so. We are for sure, but it's the most volatile emerging market currency. But every time it moves, I can qualify why, why? it moved. Yes. Not that it's volatile. You know what I'm saying? So I'm saying, I just... Unless we're just going to treat Bitcoin as the shiny rock, mm. I'm curious to know. So, so let's get to that part of the discussion because it's, it's, it's the same things that drive traditional markets, yeah. right? Perception, fear, hype yes. cycles, etc. But I think one has to acknowledge that cryptocurrency markets are still heavily manipulated. Okay. You've got some very significant players still that are, you know, overrepresented on these networks and they can swing them. Yes. And that absolutely happens. Yes. It's also early days. So Fair. we're talking about a $2 trillion asset class. Yes. This thing is going to swing wildly and somebody with a few billion dollars can swing it. And the more adoption grows, the more critical mass grows, the more this gets used for payments especially, because medium of exchange yes. is, a, is a big part of driving down volatility. Um, you know, the more the story of Bitcoin will become more like any other asset class when we talk about those drivers. And so, you start so to see that happen. Yeah. If you look at the sharp ratio of digital assets, yes. it's starting to converge with other asset classes. Yes. Now, you know, if you're hoping to get rich overnight from the stuff, then that's bad news. But if, you, if you're hoping to talk about it in the same breath as other, as other asset classes, then that's fantastic news, right? Okay. It's becoming just another asset class, and, and eventually that price volatility will disappear along with everything else. Can I, can I just add one further yes. lens to this, to, if, you, if you read monetary historians, how did money, money come into civilizations? For something to be what is called sound money, it has, to, it has to cleave to five different criteria. It has to be durable. Mm -hmm. In other words, it can't rot. All right? It's got to be durable. It's got to be 
portable because mm. you've got to move it between large distances, which is why gold bars never made very good money. Yes. It has to be divisible into smaller and smaller units so that it can be paid for cheaper and cheaper things. It has to be you know, just divisible. Durable, fungible, divisible, fungible, one portable, unit, portable, one <laughs> unit of, 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 of currency has to be exactly the same as the other units so that I can swap with mm. Simon, our units that buy the same thing. The fifth one, and by the way, the rand and the dollar, all of them are that. Mm. They all do those things. But the fifth most important criteria is it has to be scarce. Mm. There is a famous story that happens in Africa which turns out to have been the very early birth of the slave trade. There were tribes within the central part of Africa who traded with glass beads. They made glass beads and it was their, their medium of exchange. The Europeans arrived and they saw what was going on there and they went back to Europe and they built a whole bunch of factories and they made glass beads and they poured it into Africa and everybody went bankrupt and that was actually the source of the original slave trade a long time ago. If something is not scarce, it cannot be money. Now, mm. the discussion we had, debate we had just a few minutes ago, is my claim is that Bitcoin has built in mathematical scarcity. Government money has trust that the government won't debase it. And they're two different things. My, my fundamental question, which I'm not sure has been answered, is when El Salvadorans now find themselves broke, not due to anything of their government's behavior, I want to know what drove those fundamentals. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because when you see the volatility as it applies in El Salvador, when something's legal tender, things play out a little bit differently. Yeah. So, you know, a loaf of bread might cost 500 sats in mm. El Salvador today, and the price of Bitcoin crashes overnight. Mm. The loaf of bread still costs 500 sats tomorrow, right? Because it mm -hmm. takes a long time for inflation and things like that to, to trickle down into, into retail. But, but again, it's... But, but they'll cost more in the Bitcoin in my pocket. Sure. The... But again, if you're an American, you've got a currency, 60% of which was printed in the last two years, yes. right? So CPI is now, uh, it came out last week, it, we're now over 8%, I yes, think, right? That's frightening. And what's even more frightening is seeing American politicians go, well, what caused this? You know, is it corporate greed? Could it be corporate greed? You know, is that what caused this? Is, are people too greedy? Or, uh, why can't we imagine away inflation? It's like, well, maybe it's because you printed 60% of all of the currency you have in your country no. over the last two years. You've debased it fundamentally. And so, again, my point is that the drivers are the same, right? Mm. They accelerated in Bitcoin. There's more manipulation. Perception is easier to mold, right? Because mm. it's a nascent technology and a new asset class. But it's fundamentally the same things, driving value perception. You've got an open market of willing buyers and sellers. They're being manipulated. They're being coerced. Their perceptions are fallible, etc. I still haven't answered your question. Yeah, because, because at the end of the day, they will get to corporate greed. They will find the corporate greed. And I will find the failing ESCOM behind the falling rand. And I will find the corruption tr uh, tribunal But you'll find the, the same rand. things in crypto. Akranit, Vatazala. Do you know what, That's what I'm asking. But a round of applause, please, for Stephen Simon. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.